Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This morning we're beginning a seven-week series called Backyard Pilgrim, based on Father Matt Canlis' book by that same name. There we are. Um, I'm going to introduce the series as a, you know, brief introduction, and then we're going to move into week one, actually into the, the first week of the book. So first, just give me a second to introduce the series. I want to start by saying this. This is a series I really, really want you to engage. Um, it's an invitation to a pilgrimage, which is a unique invitation. How many of you have been on, would say, I've been on a pilgrimage? Yeah? So maybe you've walked the Santiago de Compostela. Anyone? Oh, very good. One or two. <clears throat> maybe you've been a pilgrim on the dusty roads of Jerusalem. Anyone? Anyone? Holy Land? Awesome. A few of you. Maybe you fell in love with Peter, Jackson, Peter Jackson's depiction of Middle Earth, and you've traveled the oceans, and you've walked the quiet roads of Hobbiton, and you've thought to yourself, it is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Being very specific there. Obviously, it's on my bucket list. If you have done a pilgrimage, chances are this, this experience has really impacted you, if not just changed your life. That's what pilgrimages do. That's why we do them. I think the genius is in the walking. It's in the moving. It's, it's, it's in the exploring. And it's actually particularly in the unhurried. It's the unhurried exploration of Ireland, isn't it, Patrick? Yes. Ask Patrick about his pilgrimages to Ireland. Of not just being physically present in a place, because you can be physically present without actually being spiritually and emotionally present, can't you? <laughs> it's being spiritually and emotionally present in a place for a purpose. You can't cruise control 75 miles per hour through a pilgrimage. And just going to snap grainy pictures through the windshield with the bug splatter in front. You know, you have to walk and, and, and enter in. So on a pilgrimage, you walk because that's the speed that God designed you to go. Or run. I'm looking at some runners back there. <laughs> Moving your legs. When you walk, you go at a speed that really resists, almost like prophetically resists, this implied message of a too fast, too full, 75 mile per hour cruise control kind of life. What's that message? You are what you do, so hurry up and do it. Do more, faster, more efficiently. You are what you do, so hurry up. You are only as important as your impact, as your influence. I am tempted to believe that even my own Christianity is only as deep and wide as my influence. So I better get busy influencing, impacting, accomplishing things for God. I don't know if you can relate. I want to invite you to slow down and walk at God's speed. That's the subtitle of the book, Backyard Pilgrim, 40 Days at God's Speed, because you'll see in a minute. To walk into a pilgrimage, where? Well, to the most important place of all. It's into the wild unknown of your neighborhood sidewalks and through the public school playground around the corner from your house. This is a pilgrimage into your own neighborhood. But you're not just going to walk for the sake of walking. You're going to walk with a preoccupying question on your heart. The whole pilgrimage, says Canlis, is centered on one pivotal question that the, the Bible is an, asking and answer. Where are you? Where are you? It's a question God asks you, and it's a question you probably are asking God from time to time. And then there's the answer, here I am. It's an answer you might give, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes wholeheartedly, but ultimately we'll see it's an answer that Jesus offers in our place. Here I am. So that's the pilgrimage before us. Where are you? Here I am. And this pilgrimage has two paths. 
There's the Bible path, which is laid out in the book. So we already sold out of our discounted copies that we ordered in bulk for you. If you didn't already get one, you can still go to livegodspeed.org and, and order one for yourself. In the meantime, you can have a friend just like text you a picture of the day's path. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. But it has two paths. The Bible path, which is just 40 verses, one verse per day, one to two verses per day, from Genesis to John. You just can begin each day. Maybe you only have 30 seconds or a minute. That's all you'll need for the Bible path. Very short. And then there's the parish path, which is the path that you will choose, a route near your home. You're going to commit to walking it 15 minutes a day for 40 days. As you explore the parish that God has put you in, you'll also explore the longings and the strivings and the fears and the doubts that are humming beneath the surface of your own life. And the hope is that you will not only walk into your neighborhood and become more locally rooted, but you'll also walk into your identity as a child of God and become more spiritually rooted. Kenless says that God's speed isn't just about slowing down. It's ultimately the pace of living life in a way where you are knowing and being known. And going too fast prevents that kind of life from happening. So it's slowing you down enough to be, be known by God and by others. So I want to show you just very quickly and practically how it looks before we jump into the first week. If you could pull up the slide, Claire, thank you, that, um, the first one that says Bible Path on it. Go to, yeah, that one right there. So this is the Bible path for tomorrow. This is where you'd start tomorrow. Genesis 1, exploring the creation story. And the question that sort of frames the whole week in front of you is, what kind of parent is God? That's the question this morning. So here's the Bible path. You'd open your book, page 22, and you'd read Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and then you'd read the short reflection, which says, As parents, we are tempted to comfort our children with words. Yet in the very beginning, God said nothing. God was simply present, present in the deepest darkness. Words would come, and with them, whole galaxies would be song-spun into existence. But for the moment, it was enough for God to simply be there, to be present, to be patient, to be both at peace and powerful, to create. What kind of parent is God? Genesis' opening words give us a silent answer. God is the parent who is present. Before there was light, before there were any signs of life, even without words, God said, here I am, present in the dark. Okay, so maybe you take that in over a morning cup of coffee, and maybe you can't get to your parish path until later that afternoon. No problem. But eventually you find 15 minutes in your day to go for a little walk. Except for this very, this is a bad example, because the first parish path is actually sitting in a quiet room. The rest of them will be walking for 15 minutes. But here's the parish path. Your pilgrimage starts in darkness. Don't go outside. First, find a room with no windows and close the door. You can also find a quiet place and simply close your eyes. Hold out your hand and feel the empty space before you. Touch the darkness. Feel the silence. Start listening. Probe God's absence. This is a healthy part of honest faith. Also begin to welcome the one who is present in darkness. Start your pilgrimage in the silent dark. Start wondering. Start asking, what will God say? Also wonder, could God's silence be a kindness? And that's it. That's day one. So this book lays out each day for you for 40 days for the Bible path and the parish path. I just, I hope you will, you will join us on this pilgrimage. You know, some of you just love being directed, saying like, here's a good thing to do, do it. And you're like, yes, thank you. That was great. I needed the clarity. Others of you immediately feel resistance when you're asked to do things. I can relate to that. And you're like, I'm not going to, stop asking me to do stuff. Okay. <laughs> I'm inviting you to do this. You can always say no. You can always say no thanks, but, but why not give it a try also? Come on. What's the worst that can happen? Here's the worst that can happen. If you don't love it, it'll be over in 40 days and you can finally stop reading your Bible and prayerfully reflecting and going for a 15-minute walk, right? The pain will be over. 
So how cool would it be if we all just did this together? And then like over the coming weeks, you can text or call one another and just, or in your life groups, you're just like, how was your, how was your walk yesterday? What was, what's God talking to you about? Or what did you think of the Bible path yesterday? Wasn't that interesting? I think it'd be something that unites us to one another and to, to the Lord. So let's walk this pilgrimage together. Again, if you didn't get a book, livegodspeed.org. You can order your copy and then have a friend text you until you get your, your copy. Well, Father, as we pilgrimage together over the coming weeks, seven weeks, I pray that by your spirit you would be with us, you are with us, that you would awaken us to your presence with us, that you are a fellow pilgrim on the way, um, and that you would be working in us, that which is pleasing in, in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the question for week one that's going to frame the week. What kind of parent is God? And the sermon can be reduced to simply saying this. God is the kind of parent who delights in you. You who are his child. You know, we tend by a secret law of the soul, it's been said, to move towards our conception of God. And so if you have a conception of God who's kind of an angry taskmaster, your spiritual life is going to reflect that. And eventually you're probably going to walk away. But if you have a conception of God who is a, a parent who delights in you, who's good, you're going to move towards him in the long haul. And so really the point of this sermon is just setting the stage by looking through Genesis 1 and saying, what kind of parent do we have? And we're going to see that he's a really, really good parent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the face of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering like a dove over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light and there was light. So here's where the story begins. God, his spirit, his creative word bringing light out of darkness. He was present in the darkness. He was powerful in the darkness. He was patient in the darkness. And when he did speak, his words created. Now my son Levi often wonders at the mystery here. Always around bedtime, these theological questions come out. If God began the world, who began God? He had to have a beginning. Everything has a beginning, except God. No one started God. Nothing started God. He's the beginningless beginning of all that is. Now, this leaves us with a bit of a mystery, doesn't it? Either some intelligent power, what we call God, who exists outside of time, created the cosmos, or nothing created the cosmos. Either an outside power did or nothing did. Either way, there's a level of mystery here. For the atheist, the mystery is how can anything come from nothing? For the theist, the mystery is God's beginninglessness. Now, there are a lot of ways to pursue this question and to probe it, but here's one. What is your experience of meaning and morality and order in the universe? The famous existentialist atheist Jean-Paul Sartre offers this famous example of a paper knife. If you took philosophy 101 in college, you definitely came across this, or anthropology probably did as well. This example is... Jean-Paul Sartre, again, existentialist atheist, he's talking about what the worldview of theism or atheism ultimately leads to as you think about people. So he says this, for the theist, when God creates, he knows exactly what he's creating. The concept of man in the mind of God is comparable to the concept of a paper knife, which is like, remember when you used to open mail with a knife, some of you? So it's a knife that opens a, you know, a letter, a letter opener. Yeah, Sartre calls it a paper knife, but it's a letter opener, yeah. Um, in the mind of the manufacturer. So God produces man as the craftsman produces a letter opener. Thus, each individual man is the realization of a certain concept and serves a definite purpose. 
So there's intention and order and purpose to your life and to the created order. So this is Sartre. He says that. He admits that. Conversely, atheistic existentialism, of which I am a representative, says Sartre, declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, then man will be whatever he makes himself. Thus, there is no human nature, because there is no God to have a conception of it or purpose for it. Man simply is. This places the entire responsibility for your existence squarely upon your own shoulders. So what do you think? Is your experience of the world and of life and of love and of beauty and of goodness and of right and wrong, is it ordered and significant and purposeful? Then, according to this brilliant atheist, you are living, knowingly or not, in a theistic frame, in a theistic worldview. God created the world and everything in it with a purpose, so there's, like, there's a grain to your life and to your design and to the universe. You know, after living this famous life as a committed, brilliant philosopher who was an atheist, existentialist, one of Sartre's best friends testified to a conversion on his deathbed. He was gravitating towards Messianic Judaism as he died. And on his deathbed, his close companion Pierre Victor said that Sartre spoke these words. He said, I do not feel that I am the product of chance. By the way, Sartre's followers experienced this as a profound betrayal. They denied that it was true. I do not feel that I am the product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected and prepared and prefigured. In short, a being whom only a creator could put here. Genesis 1 through 3 not only tells us that God is present and creating purposefully, but it implies something about how he is present. Namely, he's present as love. Why do I say that? Well, now when we read Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we can sort of read back into them the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit hovering God's word, cooperating to create light and eventually all that exists. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Trinity is this It's the theological foundation for the definitively Christian statement about who God is. God is love. We can say that because of the Trinity. If love is basically, I make this point a lot, but it's it's just, it's worth dwelling on. (laughs) If love is basically defined as willing the good of another, of another person, then what does love require? It requires an other to love. And so because of the Trinity, we can say that love is in God's very essence because he has been eternally loving the other and serving and glorifying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this mutual dance of self-giving and service and and edifying the other. It's the very core of who he is. Conversely, a God who is unipersonal, who is thought of as unipersonal, cannot said to be eternally loving, really, because there's no object to love. There's no one to serve and to bless and to will the good of until there's creation. So, The essential thing about that God would really be power and will, because he alone is in charge, right? But the Christian view of God is that he is love, and this means that the point of life, here's here's just one practical takeaway, the point of your life is not to cruise through at 70 miles per hour, getting from A to B, and getting things done, and amassing influence, and having impact, and living however you fancy, as I said in the first service, and then I realized I was speaking as a British person, but living however you want. The point of life is love. The point of life is to reflect, as an image bearer of God, the love he has for others. So when you're serving and giving 
and placing someone else above you as more important than you and edifying them, you're living along the grain of the way you were created to be. And when not, you're not. You're like a paper knife, a letter opener, designed with a specific purpose to love others, to be in a relationship with God and with one another. So if I can push a little bit for us specifically here in Denver, it also means that the mountains are not your best friend. Denver is actually a very lonely city, largely because people cope by going skiing or hiking and not by developing typically deep relationships. In 2019, the Colorado Sun wrote this. Loneliness is a growing threat to public health. Research shows that loneliness has the same impact on health and death rates as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A recent Cygnus study revealed that more than half, 52% of people in greater Denver say that they sometimes or always feel that no one really knows them well. No one knows them well. While 38% say they feel that their relationships are not meaningful. So not only like no one knows them well, but they never have a touch point in their life where they feel like I'm having a meaningful connection. 38% of the people around us. This pilgrimage begins to invite you to realize that you are not alone in the darkness, but you are created by a loving Father who created you to love, to love Him and to love others. So if you want to cooperate with your own design, the purpose that you were, the way that you were built, choose community. Choose to enter into knowing and being known. This pilgrimage will invite you into deeper community with God and with your neighbors. You know, as you walk on your, pilgrim parish, uh, your pilgrimage on the parish path, maybe you'll run into a neighbor. And if these statistics are true, then there's a 50% chance that person's lonely and doesn't feel seen or known. And maybe you've slowed down enough and you've made enough space in your life to say, I'm going to have a 30-minute conversation with my neighbor and get to know them, ask them their story, invite them over for dinner. Invite them over into your backyard. Be a backyard pilgrim. So what kind of parent is God? Genesis 1 says he's present. He's a present parent. He's a loving parent. And what else? As we move into the remainder of the creation account, we see this pattern emerge. You probably heard it emerging in the readings. There's, there's this cadence to Genesis 1 in the creation story. It's poetic, not scientific. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. But did you notice the change? After God makes mankind, God saw that it wasn't just good, but that it was very good indeed. And one of the things that shocks many seminary students in their first years, they're studying the Old Testament, is that the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11 has a lot of parallels in ancient Near Eastern literature. There's these places that Genesis 1 through 11 overlaps a lot with ancient Near Eastern literature, especially with the flood story. Um, there, there seemed to have been in the ancient Near Eastern mind this very uh, well-known story of a, of a flood and God asking this righteous man to build a boat and rescuing them. So it's very interesting to read Genesis 1 through 11 with this knowledge because it helps you realize that there's all these similarities, but then the places of departure are where you really need to pay attention to. That's where like the meat is on the bone, so to speak. So what are the places of departure? <laughs> Understand that Genesis, one more thing before we get to that question, Genesis was not written, obviously, to a modern audience. It was written to ancient Near Eastern people. And so we cannot read in categories of modern scientific questions. We can't read in questions like evolution, Big Bang, intelligent design, young versus old earth. These are modern and, and distinctly evangelical American really questions. I think they're really interesting. I love talking about them. They do have consequences, but Genesis isn't a science textbook. And so there isn't tension 
there. Genesis 1 through 11 doesn't actually bind us as Christians to one exact reading of some of those questions, but it does give us some food for thought. The main point of Genesis 1 through 11 is this. God is the creator of everything. God's creation was good. God gave the earth as a gift to humanity, who he made in his image. Disobedience separates people from God and separated the primeval pair, Adam and Eve, from God. God instituted a program called the Covenant to redeem all of creation. It's these profound theological truths. That's what the story is communicating. So now, especially as you dive into the differences between Genesis and the ancient Near Eastern stories, here's what you see. In the ancient Near Eastern stories of creation, the gods are petty. they're, They're plenteous, meaning there's lots of them. And they invent people as slaves. And so really the main differences come out, who is God and who are people? Because Yahweh's creation story, God is one. So monotheism is is new in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is a revolutionary thought that God could be one, not many. So Yahweh is one and all-powerful. He creates people not out of a need, but out of love. So the, the good, the good, the good turns into the very good because he's creating people not as slaves to serve him like the ancient Near Eastern gods, but as children to delight in. So when God creates us good, you know, creates everything good would no longer do, he creates you and he says, this is very good indeed. The Trinity does not need us to serve him like slaves. The Trinity had no needs. God created out of this lavish overflow of creative love for you and me. It's why the New Testament refers to us as his poem or his masterpiece. We're his children. So this idea that God could be one, that he could be loving, that he doesn't actually need us, but he just wants us because he loves us and his, his creative love is overflowing for the other, it's a radical departure from the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. And so as you pilgrimage this week and you read Genesis 2, verse 7, the moment God breathes his life into Adam, makes a living being, Father Matt's going to call this the, by the way, Matt Canlis, who wrote the book, is a priest in our diocese. If you've read, if you've watched Godspeed, the film, he's in Scotland. He's since moved here, and I know him and respect him a lot. So he writes this, to start human life, God didn't press a button. He didn't send a lightning bolt. He didn't dispatch an angel. Remember how in the beginning God's spirit is present without words hovering over the dark waters? Well, now again, God's spirit is hovering over Adam, not saying anything, but changing everything. How? With a kiss. He goes face to face to fill Adam's empty lungs with the Holy Spirit. What kind of parent is God? He's the affectionate kind. The strong, tender, trustworthy kind whose kisses bring life. This is the same kiss God's Spirit will give any lost child, anyone willing to be born again. So if the question is, where is God? The answer here is, here I am face to face. And finally, the creation cadence climaxes. On day seven, God rests. And the point is made that this doesn't, the the Hebrew behind this doesn't just mean he took a nap or like took a day off. It means there's this deep, joyful, restorative way of being in the world This pilgrimage is one way of entering into that rest, slowing down, purposely not producing or impacting or influencing or thinking of yourself as someone who's primarily someone who needs to get things done or be expedient or be efficient, but slowing down enough to move at God's speed, which is the speed here of rest, of taking deep satisfaction and joy in relating to people and loving others. So asking, where are you, God? on this pilgrimage, then making space to let him answer 
you. Here I am. Let me be a parent to you. Let me be present and loving and affectionate with you. Let's rest together. It's making space to let him tell you about who he actually is. And so if your conception of God is over here, he wants to correct it. Over here, he wants to correct it. We have all these different extremes in our minds about who God is, and in our heart of hearts, what, what he wants to speak to you is this. Here I am, your parent, delighting in you, loving you. I'm affectionate with you. I'm present with you. You know, Matt Canlis concludes this way. He says, what kind of parent is God? He's a father running down the corridor at the hospital exclaiming with great joy, it's a boy and a girl. He's a parent who delights in his children. That's the prayer. Father, would you help each of us to understand you as a father who delights in us, that you would correct the various wrong views of you that we have and that we hold, maybe through wounds even, of our own upbringing, but that you would teach us who you really are, that you are a parent who just deeply delights in us. May we know you as we pilgrimage with you this week as one who is present with us, who is loving us, and who delights in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.